Hello, and before this episode starts, I'd just like to give a quick disclaimer. First off, myself and Sean, we are not officially experts in these fields. We are, however, two university students who read the news a lot. We study these things in our own time. And everything we say is, of course, our own opinions on these topics. That said, without further ado... I'm Sean Efron, and I have a migraine. And today we're here to talk about stuff that's been going on in the world. Last month, we left you off with the history of just how the Israel-Hamas war has gotten so bad. And we just wanted to revisit that again this month because there's still a lot we can learn from this situation. Most notably, as you might already be aware, the Israel-Hamas war is an incredibly divisive conflict. People tend to have pretty strong opinions either for one side or the other. And this divisiveness is incredibly visible, not just in regards to the Israel-Hamas war, but in regards to our media as a whole. Something that this conflict does touch at, though, is the fact that there's a lot of people who have vested interests, particularly in the media, of supporting one side or the other. And if we take a look at the recent case of an explosion at a hospital in the Gaza Strip, we can see pretty easily just how these divisive situations tend to break down. This situation I'm talking about is on October 23rd, there was an explosion at a hospital in the Gaza Strip. Essentially, this hospital was being used as a shelter for refugees, and usually either side of an armed conflict isn't going to target an area where people are gathering and taking refuge. As such, this explosion, if it was a deliberate attack from either side, would be a pretty big no-no to say the least, and an absolutely massive war crime and human rights violation. What makes it interesting, though, is that both sides say that the other one was the one who caused the blast. Israel is claiming that the explosion wasn't caused by one of their munitions and that it was actually a Hamas rocket that caused the damage. And Hamas is saying that Israel intentionally hit their hospital. However, there's a number of reasons why this particular issue is so divisive and shows us so well how the media portrayal of this issue has become so key to its divisiveness. The strike at the Al-Hali hospital has been blamed by the IDF on the Islamic Jihad militant group and by Hamas on the IDF. What's known for certain is that there was a blast in the parking lot of the Al-Hali hospital which set several vehicles on fire and caused some level of destruction. According to the Gaza Health Ministry, which is run by Hamas, about 500 people perished. According to other estimates, this number is closer to 200 or 300. The primary subject of debate here is whether or not the blast was an Israeli munition or a misfired or shot down Gazan missile. What makes this so interesting is that we have visual evidence and a recording of exactly what happened the night in question. This video evidence comes from a live stream that the Arab news site Al Jazeera was streaming when this blast occurred. What this video shows is a number of missiles being launched from the Gaza Strip, Hamas's rockets, that then got intercepted by Israel's anti-missile Iron Dome system. After the last missile was launched in what appeared to be an unusual way for Hamas's missiles, there was an explosion that followed fairly soon after. Israel is saying that this Hamas missile either misfired or got hit by the Iron Dome system, fell back down into the hospital, and it was ultimately Hamas's mistake that caused this tragedy and loss of life. Hamas is saying that Israel's just chose to launch another blast behind their Iron Dome interception system to hide the fact that they just targeted a hospital intentionally. 
However, the analysis of this video is where we can see the real divisiveness of this issue. As you have a lot of different news sites claiming a lot of different things depending on where they're located. Many Western sources make a claim either that this missile was the one that struck the hospital or that this missile was in fact unrelated and a different misfired missile fired by Islamic Jihad is responsible for the damage. According to groups like Al Jazeera, however, this video provides strong evidence that whatever projectile hit the hospital was not a Gaza missile, that this projectile that was seen being shot down was totally destroyed, thereby proving that it could not have been a Gazan missile. Others claim that the projectile is seen falling, potentially having hit the hospital, yet others claim that it was an instant miles away and has nothing to do with the blast at the hospital itself. And this debate uh, is strongly split between Arab and Western sources. Western sources are more likely to say that the blast was a misfired Gazan missile, take for instance the United Kingdom, France, Canada, and the United States. Groups in the Middle East are more likely to argue that it was an Israeli munition. Mm -hmm. This split in opinion is really why this conflict has become so divisive. Because if you look to, for example, the BBC, a news site that you tend to get in Western countries, you see a lot of pro-Israeli analysis. The BBC claims that once again, it was a Hamas missile that caused the explosion. However, if you look to news sites common in the Arab world, with the most prominent being Al Jazeera, usually known for being incredibly unbiased and neutral on issues, you can see a heavily vested interest in supporting Arab positions, and particularly the one that Israel isn't all that great for the region. This is a trend that has been going on ever since the... Is, uh, the Israel-Hamas war started. With Al Jazeera, after the October 7th attack by Hamas, almost exclusively covering the Israel-Hamas war and largely not covering anything else, which is extremely unusual for such a prominent news site that covers generally the entirety of the world. This would be like if Reuters or the Associated Press for us Americans chose to entirely focus on, let's say, the Republican presidential debate. It's a little bit out of character, and especially when this particular news site is exclusively focusing on pro-Gaza and pro-Palestine issues. There are occasional opinion pieces that are published that aren't the most favorable Hamas, but overall, what you're seeing is a largely Arab-focused position. Fundamentally, this has become a propaganda war as much as it has been a military conflict. Many depictions will vary. Some people will focus on stories and statements that will vilify one side or the other. Some groups might focus on war crimes committed by Hamas and the Hamas attack on Israel on the 7th. Some groups might focus more on Hamas's reports of civilian casualties, uh, numbers which have been disputed by the United States government but supported by the World Health Organization as accurate. And with these focuses and with the individual stories that are reported on, with the almost anecdotal nature of the reporting, it's very easy to paint a picture that either places one side in a saintly light and demonizes the other, or creates a fog around the whole situation. Quite literally in this situation, we've got a fog of war, but it's of our own making. Every faction that's reporting on this topic has some interest in supporting one side or the other. Israel's statements generally tend to favor themselves. And statements from group Hamas, as well as groups that may be backing them, for example, Iran, who has come out 
in strong support of what they call resisting Israeli occupation and oppression, then you can see that no side wants to make a statement that's really harmful to itself. Israel's not going to admit they're doing anything bad. Hamas is not going to admit they're doing anything bad. And the allies of either side are probably not going to admit that the side they support is at fault here. What you end up with is a world where you really can't entirely trust what either side is saying because everyone has a vested interest in making their side look a bit better. The point we're trying to make here is not that you should be supporting one side of this issue or the other. We are not telling you to support the two-state solution or one-state solution. We're not telling you to think that the IDF are heroes or that they are villains. What we're saying, though, is that media reporting will influence your opinion. But it's important to remember that most parties have some sort of vested interest. And in contentious issues like wars, like politics, it's important to have a variety of sources, a variety of inputs, and to try to read between the lines. This is also the case in not just international issues, but in more homegrown ones as well. As, as of right now, there are currently two cases that the Supreme Court has heard discussing whether or not political officials in America can legally block people from their personal social media accounts. These two cases, Link versus Freed and O'Connor Radfield versus Garnier, are dealing with one central question. To what extent do public officials for various levels of government, from local to the federal level, have the ability to separate themselves as a government official from their personal selves on social media? And to what extent is even a personal social media account just working as an extension of the person as a government official? Now, these particular cases in question are twofold. The two cases originate in California and Michigan. The California case involving one Michelle O'Connor-Ratcliffe and TJ Zane, members of a school district trustees board, have blocked parents of students after they made hundreds of posts critical of how the school handled issues of race and finances, as according to Reuters. In the Michigan case, a Port Huron resident, one Kevin Lindcase, sued the city manager James Freed for blocking him over posts critical of the city's COVID-19 response. The question is whether or not these people can block their critics on social media, effectively silencing them, preventing them from responding directly to posts or seeing their posts or being able to engage with them. The question is, are they then blocking people from engaging with government or are they private citizens who are avoiding a conversation as is within their rights? A lot of this issue comes back to our First Amendment rights, the freedom of speech. And the fundamental theory of the freedom of speech is that the government can't do anything against you even if they don't like what you say. So you can say whatever you like to the government, and once again, they can't punish you. That said, private citizens don't have the same restrictions, though, because you don't have to listen to people when you're a private citizen. If you don't like talking to someone, you can just walk away from the situation. If someone's trolling you on social media, you don't have to listen to them. That's been foundational to our understanding of social media up to this point that, yeah, you don't have to interact with everyone, even if the internet likes to force you to. The question here is whether or not these individuals are operating in a state capacity. That is to say, when they're making these posts and comments on social media, are they operating as themselves, as a personal private citizen? or are they operating as a representative of their government function? If they are, in fact, operating in a state capacity, for instance, making statements on new laws or rulings 
or matters of their government position, then they can't block people. But if they are operating as a private citizen, they certainly can. A lot of what makes this interesting is that in America, we don't have a right to privacy, as you will. We have certain restrictions on what government can do to invade your privacy, but we don't say that you inherently have a right to your own privacy. And particularly, as the William & Mary Law Center notes, we especially take this into account for officials of public office. As, funnily enough, we like knowing everything about the people we want to elect to government office. We want to know how people think because we're electing them to represent us. And as such, we generally acknowledge that the media can just go open season on public officials in a way they can't for private citizens. If you were to, say, disclose the residence of a private citizen in the media, that would be a really big offense and something that the media isn't really allowed to do. But if you would do the same for a candidate for public office, that's perfectly fine because we want to know everything about them that we can. For example, you wouldn't want it to be made public where a witness in a murder investigation lived. But at the same time, you want to know if your senator that you're electing to the United States Senate actually lives in your state or not. Now, the thing that makes this issue especially interesting is the conduct of public officials during the administration of former President Donald Trump. Following the 2016 election, both in the United States and abroad, there has been a major increase of government policy being stated on social media, especially Twitter, now called X. American officials, especially the former president himself, would frequently post statements of political opinion or policy on the platform. We've observed actual embassies and consulates and diplomats arguing with each other, bickering on Twitter, effectively in a state capacity. Take, for instance, some of the quote-unquote flame war between Ukraine and Russia during the beginning of the Russian invasion of Ukraine. Social media has become a public forum just as much as television reporting or telegraph messages were in the 20th century. And one of the strongest cases made for no, you shouldn't be able to block people from your private social media pages is the example of former President Donald Trump, with Politico making the argument that would you really be able to understand what went on between 2016 and 2020 if you didn't have access to Donald Trump's social media pages. Because so much of the administration policies, so much of, well, scandals and issues that were going on in the government were publicly discussed by the president at the time. So if you didn't have access to that crucial resource, would you have been able to have the same understanding of the workings of our government that you would have had otherwise? This is part of the wider debate on social media that has been occurring most especially in the United States of its limits, of how it should be regulated, how it should be mandated. We've seen cases recently as reported on by groups like the BBC of concern over protections for minors on social media, over concerns of targeted advertising, concerns of the influence of social media and bot accounts on elections. And this issue is not going anywhere anytime soon. It's fundamentally linked to what we discussed earlier. Social media will influence your personal biases through the views of others being constantly channeled towards you. And it's important for us to develop the necessary literacy to read between the lines when encountering various pieces of information or misinformation in media and social media. And with that parting thought, that's all we have time for this month. This is Miguel Spalding Price. I'm Sean Nefron. Signing off for now. <laughs>